Morning, everybody. As always, so good to see you and so good to be together as a church. Um, We are continuing our series in Acts at the moment. I was thinking about this just yesterday. I think we began this back in February. And uh, we're we're somewhat on the home straight now. But if you're like me, you really don't want it to end. Uh, Well, it's not going to end yet. We've got a number more weeks. Um, But this morning, we are diving back into Acts chapter 19. So if you have a Bible, please, can I invite you to turn there? Last week, we looked at the beginning of Acts 19. I think we went through to verse 10. We're actually going to start in verse 8 again this morning. And I'm going to read right through to the end of the chapter. So if you have a Bible, do find that. And let's prepare our hearts to hear God's word. Beginning verse 8. And Paul entered the synagogue... And for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. 
and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And so the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theatre, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theatre. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know what they had come together, why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Well, it's quite a passage, and the title I've given to this morning's message is No Little Disturbance, and reading that we can see, yes, there was no little disturbance in Ephesus in those two years. And I wonder, have you ever tried summing up a particular period of time or period in your life in a single sentence? Try to come up with a summary statement of, of, of perhaps a series of dramatic events. Maybe you'd look back on this summer and you'd say, that was quite the adventure. Or perhaps you get to the end of the year and you look back and you say, it was a pretty good year on the whole. Or, whoa, wasn't that a season full of ups and downs? There's a well-known series of children's books, some of you might have read them as a child, called A Series of Unfortunate Events. And that's a really well-chosen title for those books. They're not the happiest of books. They are about a series of unfortunate events. And Charles Dickens begins one of his most famous novels, A Tale of Two Cities, with these now famous lines. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. It seems like he was struggling to sum up the times. As we saw last week, the Apostle Paul is now on his third missionary journey and he has stopped off for more than two years in the city of Ephesus, proclaiming Christ and discipling a growing church of new believers. And knowing Paul as we've grown to know him in Acts so far, it won't surprise us to hear that they were an eventful two years. Nothing's ever quiet when Paul is around. They were eventful in all manner of ways. 
If you had to sum up in a single sentence Paul's entire two-year ministry in Ephesus, one way to do it would be with our title this morning, which are Paul's, uh, sorry, Luke's own words in verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now the way, I don't know if we've said this before going through Acts, the way was just a term that was used often back then to describe Christianity. And as we've seen before in Acts, the way certainly had a way of causing no little disturbance wherever it spread. Nowhere, I think, is that more evident than in this morning's chapter. The arrival of the gospel in Ephesus was like this giant pebble being thrown again and again into a formerly calm and undisturbed little pool. And then, but this this then is what the gospel does wherever it goes. The gospel is meant to cause no little disturbance. It is designed to cause a great spiritual awakening wherever it goes. The question, though, that our passage this morning, I think, is able to help us answer in more detail is how. How does the gospel cause a great disturbance and even a great spiritual awakening in people's lives wherever it goes? Acts 19, I think, reveals a series of ingredients. It's a chain of events that led in Ephesus to a truly great spiritual awakening in many people's lives. And these five ingredients, which we're going to look at under five headings this morning, surely remain just as important and vital today for the gospel to go on bearing fruit and bringing about spiritual awakenings in towns and cities and neighborhoods wherever it goes. And first of all, it all begins with God. God is the first and most vital link in the chain. So first heading this morning, first thing we see here, God was at work. God was at work. Luke makes this so crystal clear all throughout the chapter and really all throughout Acts that all spiritual good, all gospel good happens first and foremost by the sovereign hand of God. God was at work. Healings and deliverances, souls saved, sinners coming to faith, a new church being birthed and built. None of this was orchestrated by man. None of this was man's doing. Even the Apostle Paul is not at the center of what takes place here in Ephesus. In fact, it's really striking how uninvolved Paul is. Okay? Maybe if you've got children, sometimes you might think they're very uninvolved in doing stuff around the house. Uh, I'm not saying Paul was, was lazy. But it's striking how uninvolved he is in one sense in many of this chapter's most dramatic moments. Almost as if to make this point that what matters most is that God is at work. First of all, let me show you how this, where we see this. First of all, uh, Luke wants us to know who is doing the miracles here. He doesn't simply say Paul was doing miracles. But verse 11, that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. In fact, so important is it to see that these are God's miracles, not Paul's, that many times they're happening when Paul's not even there. Verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. People have just... I think it seems just literally carrying away Paul's handkerchiefs, his aprons, things he would have used to mop the sweat of his brow while he's working, perhaps making tents or preaching in the heat of the day, taking his apron. And when these items touch the sick or the possessed, diseases leave them. 
and evil spirits come out of them, Paul is not even present for much of the time. God is the one doing extraordinary miracles. Later on, when the seven sons of Sceva, and we'll come to them in more detail in a bit, but when they get taught a lesson that ends up propelling many new Christians to greater devotion to Jesus, Paul is not there. And then when nearly the whole city gathers to riot over the dramatic changes taking place in their city because of the gospel, Paul is actually kept back from going in and talking to them. We don't get a great speech from Paul before the city in this chapter. All the way through this chapter, what's clear is that Paul is not the primary instigator. God is. God is the one sovereignly orchestrating all of these things so as to bring more people to himself. What this teaches us here from the outset this morning is that there is nothing more essential, no ingredient more vital from start to finish for the spread of the gospel and for the growth of the church and the salvation of souls than that God should be at work amongst us. If you yourself are not with us, Lord, then how can we go forth was Moses' heart up on that mountain, and the same for us. We need God to be at work in every way. And yet, having said all that, Paul, I promise, isn't idle. God has led Paul to Ephesus at precisely this time for a reason. God has given Paul a commission. He's given him something that will be the divine catalyst in every place to bring people to new life in Jesus. And that catalyst is a message. That catalyst is God's word. So the second link in the chain we see here this morning, second heading, is God's word was proclaimed. God's word was proclaimed. This great awakening in Ephesus, it had right at its heart the act of God's word being proclaimed. Now, I know this this is an exciting chapter, but we make a mistake if we think that the miracles are the standout thing in this chapter that they are somehow more important than the message. Luke, if we, told, if we said that to Luke, Luke would, couldn't disagree with us more strongly. God had sent Paul there primarily to proclaim a message. So firstly, notice how Luke actually brackets the dramatic events in verses 10 to 20 with two references to the word of the Lord. So verse 10, he talks about Paul's teaching ministry having continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And then in verse 20, he sums up, sums up events saying, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Then even when Paul's biggest critic, Demetrius, summarizes the cause of all this disturbance, it's Paul's preaching that even he points to as being at the heart of all the problems. He says, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying, that God's made with hands are not God's. And then finally, over in chapter 21, we'll we'll spend time in this in a few weeks' time, when Paul reminds the Ephesian church elders later on of his ministry amongst them for those two years, he tells them three times over that his focus had always been proclaiming the word of God. Chapter 20, verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. 
Verse 31, for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. It is so clearly here, the word of God that God uses fundamentally to turn the world and turn people's lives upside down and inside out and to awaken people's hearts to him. The miracles in Ephesus help confirm the message that Paul brought, especially in a place so caught up in mysticism and occult magic like Ephesus. But it was first and foremost the exposition of the word that God used to convert and transform the city. And and that's the unchanging pattern all throughout the book of Acts. We've seen it before. Luke is constantly summarizing what's happening as as the church is growing. And he says things like, The word of God increased and multiplied, and the word of the Lord was spreading. God has promised to work mightily through his word. And so the only way for us to keep doing what we can do to lead people to Christ is to go on proclaiming that same word. There, is, there, is, there are people on our hearts, I know this morning, that we would love to see come to know Jesus for themselves. There is no surer way for them, for friends and family members and colleagues and even strangers to come to Jesus than for us to bring the word to them and help them understand it. That's the second link in the chain of this great spiritual awakening in Ephesus. God was at work, God's word was proclaimed, and as a result, thirdly, Christ's lordship was recognized. We've already seen how the extraordinary miracles in Ephesus, they were being done by God, even at times through uh, items that Paul had touched and maybe he'd even put them down and forgotten where they were or wondered where they'd gone while he went back to tent making or got on preaching the word. The question is, should we expect God to work similar miracles in people's lives today as we share the gospel with them? Well, I really appreciated this week um, uh, these words from a commentator on Acts, Tony Merida. I think he's so helpful here. He writes this. God may choose to do the miraculous today too, but we must not expect him to do so, much less demand it. Many Christians want to see a miracle every moment, but little of the typical Christian life involves visible displays of miraculous power. Most of life involves submitting to God's revealed will in the Bible, walking by the Spirit and pursuing godly wisdom. So let's have a balanced view of miracles. We must not rule miracles out. God can do whatever he pleases. But we must not assume God isn't working when we don't see visible miracles. The greatest miracle, after all, is the new birth. God raised Jesus from the dead, and all who are in Christ will also vacate a tomb. So, Word of warning for us this morning, while we shouldn't start a sweat band ministry, in case someone was going to run off and set something up on Etsy, no, but we should keep trusting in the God who raises the dead. We should keep pouring out our hearts to him in prayer, even asking for healing, as James 5 says. We must keep believing that he will change lives as the gospel is proclaimed. So the main takeaway here is not to... Expect God to do miracles, nor to doubt that he could, but instead to believe that God is quite capable of revealing his power in any way 
he sees fit. And to pray more than anything else for the biggest miracle of all. That he would raise people spiritually from the dead, bring them to faith and give them new life in Christ. That, that should be our prayer. Now it's helpful here as well I think to recognise that even Luke seems to regard these particular miracles as, ex- as especially extraordinary. They seem to go beyond what even the Apostle Paul would, would normally experience on his missionary journeys. The, these miracles were extraordinary. I mean, we think all, all miracles are out of the ordinary. These are extraordinary. And that may well be because God here is condescending in a special way to get the attention of so dark and superstitious a people as were in Ephesus. A people so steeped in paganism and mysticism. Because the thing we have to realize about Ephesus is this was a city unusually steeped in the practice of magic and the occult. It's no wonder, actually, I was thinking about this this week. It never struck me before, but perhaps it's no surprise that Paul's letter to the Ephesians has so much to say about spiritual warfare. But we all need to hear his words there about spiritual warfare. But, but in Ephesus, the warfare was, it was truly tangible. With ordinary people dabbling in dark and dangerous things like it was just a hobby. We might think of a place today a bit like Glastonbury, sharing some similarities with Ephesus, but, but, but Glastonbury on a much, much smaller scale. This, this is huge. This is in your face. And in a place like Ephesus, it was also not surprising that there would be business for a group of self-proclaimed exorcists who were roaming the city like they were the first century equivalent of the Ghostbusters. Luke actually refers to them as the Seven Sons of Sceva, which is an excellent name for a heavy metal rock band. But they weren't a rock band. These seven Jewish brothers were apparently exorcists who made a living traveling from town to town, claiming to drive out evil spirits. And like many traveling exorcists at the time, this wasn't an entirely unusual thing, they weren't faithful monotheistic Jews who believed there's only one God. They were what we call syncretists, meaning they were quite happy to blend together different parts of different religions, different cults and superstitions, and basically just go with whatever worked on the day. They would likely turn up with supposedly magical objects, uh, lucky charms, and offer up all sorts of strange incantations which they would throw into. It would include all sorts of different names of different deities, different gods, different powers, as many as they could think of, to cover their bases, and perhaps to sound impressive. But now, of course, in Ephesus, they've heard of Paul. And they've heard of Paul's God, Jesus, and of what he can do. And they decide, we'd like to get in on this a bit. We'd like to buy in to a bit of Jesus as well. They'd just like to leverage his name for commercial purposes, if that's okay. To throw Jesus' name into the melting pot of their incantations along with all the other deities that they would name. They don't actually know Jesus. They don't proclaim Jesus. They don't honor Jesus. They just want to borrow Jesus, borrow his name. They want to harness a bit of his power. And our world today is full of people trying to do the same. People who want a Jesus they can use, not a Jesus who can save. People who want a Jesus who can make them rich and make them well or be like a spiritual good luck charm, not a Jesus whom they actually know and trust and worship as Lord. 
But such a syncretistic approach to Jesus, a, a half in, half out, mix him all together with all the other gods, will not go well. It will never go well. It cannot work. And here we see even the demons know that. It's another occasion in the Bible where the demons are more clued up than the average man. They know this isn't going to work. You can't just have a little bit of Jesus. But the seven sons of Sceva haven't learned that lesson yet. And so they confidently say to a man with an evil spirit, verse 13, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. You can see how secondhand it is already. I've heard Paul proclaiming him. We adjure you in the name of Jesus. Come out. Verse 15, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They run home utterly defeated, beaten, bloodied, uh, ashamed. Here's the lesson we need to learn. Blending faiths. Practicing syncretism, mixing Jesus with other religions or other bits or other pagan beliefs doesn't work. And that is a key part of the message we have to explain to people when we share the gospel with them. That Jesus' name is unique, that he is above all, that he alone is Lord. Jesus' name is not just some magic word that can be used like a lucky charm by someone who doesn't actually know him and follow him. Jesus himself will not be mocked or trifled with. He'll not be mingled with false gods. He will not have people think they can have a bit of him in their lives and mix him in the blender with all sorts of other religious beliefs and superstitious practices. And we need them to know that no one can imitate or manipulate his power. The power to deliver people, the power to heal, the power to save and transform lives is his and his alone. He alone is supreme. His name, which is a beautiful name, alone can save. And such knowledge, when we really grasp it, or maybe better yet, when it grasps us, should shake us to our core and send us to our knees in worship. Which is, in fact, precisely what now happens in verse 17. As people see what's just happened to these men who thought they could trifle with Jesus and just throw him in their pick-and-mix bag, here's what happens when people hear the real gospel and recognize the true and utterly exclusive lordship of Jesus. Verse 17, And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. This is the only right response to seeing how incomparably supreme and how incompatible Jesus is with the worship of any other thing or person. A holy awe should fall upon us as we see that Jesus alone is Lord. And our response should be to extol the name of the Lord, to confess with our lips, as we've been doing this morning, Jesus, how great and holy you are. There is no one likely you. You alone are Lord. Well, what happens next in Ephesus is, if anything, even more remarkable. That's because it's those who were already professing Christians who are the ones most transformed by what they've just seen. And that brings us to the fourth link in the chain of events here this morning. God was at work. God's word was proclaimed. Christ's lordship was recognized. And then Christian lives were changed. 
Christian lives were changed. Verse 18. Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What's happening here is the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction to the hearts of believers that many of them, though they've already begun to know and follow Christ, they've already heard the message, maybe they became Christians recently under Paul's ministry, they're realizing they've also still been indulging in forms of idolatry and syncretism for themselves. They've been holding on to the relics of their pagan past, mixing superstition and other religions and magical arts in with their devotion to Christ. They were Christians who, as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, had still been hiding things in their closets up to now. But now, under the convicting work of the Spirit, they want to bring those hidden things out into the open to gladly rid themselves of their past, to to have nothing more to do with false worship and the occult. They want to truly commit themselves in the words of 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3, to a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And so they come, they come in their droves, confessing their past evil deeds. And they bring out all their old books on the magic arts, along with all of their good luck charms, their, their, their magical items, their idols and their talismans, anything associated with the occult or false religions, and they burn these things in the sight of all. Now, their lives are visibly and undeniably changed for everyone to see. They're nailing their colors to the mast. They're they're, they're doing something that says, I follow Christ and I will follow him alone. He is my Lord. He is the captain of my fate. I will not trust in any other God or power from this day forward. And so remarkable is their repentance that the value of what they burn comes to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's the the equivalent of 50,000 days' wages, or somewhere around five million pounds. In one city, in one day. This is the power of the gospel on vivid display. Now, did they do this because they felt like they, they, they were made to, that they felt forced to do it? No, they did it because... They had a a new sense of awe. And they had a new and deeper love for Jesus because of the expulsive power of this new affection in their hearts. As one writer puts it, their actions shouted that he was more valuable to them than any God, power, false source of trust, or any amount of money. What of us then? That is the question. What of us? Is this is this a passage? Is this passage a call to us to burn everything secular in our lives? Maybe everything that we enjoyed before we became Christians. Should we be burning all our old records for those that still got records? All our old books, our artwork, our hobbies, our day-to-day interests, as, as some Christians have been encouraged to do over the years. No, that's not what this is God is calling us to here. This is not a call to go burn your stamp collection or burn your DVDs or burn your Spotify playlists. I don't know if you can do that, but you can delete it. But it is a call 
to rid ourselves of anything that might lead us astray from God. To throw off anything that might entangle us in sin. And to most certainly destroy anything we personally own that encourages pagan worship, false religion, and dabbling in the occult. Whether it's religious statues, tarot cards, lucky charms, books of spells, books of occult symbols and practices, anything related to druidry, wicca, false spirituality, shamanism and animism. If you don't know what all these terms mean, that's kind of good. But I throw them out there because you may have come across them. Anything that encourages polytheism, the worship of many gods. Anything that encourages pantheism, worshipping everything as God. And even anything that might couch itself in the language of Christianity, but which actually offers to lead us closer to God in a way that's detached from Christ and detached from the gospel. To lead us closer to God in a way that's detached from the clear teaching of Scripture may be encouraging us to go down more mystical pathways of self-discovery and of listening to our own hearts. We must not listen to our own hearts. They, they're not helpful. They are untrustworthy. We listen to Jesus. Satan operates with great power and he has many different means of deception. He is a destroyer and a deceiver and not to be underestimated or trifled with. And yet God's power is far greater still to free us from these things if we have toyed with them in any way in our past. The vital thing to do today is to repent to reject all rivals to Jesus, to to do what the Ephesians do, to confess our secret sins to God and forsake ungodly practices, to destroy anything dark or actually demonic in our lives, in our homes, to remember that Jesus alone is Lord and that he truly is our highest good and greatest joy. That he, no one else has done this, he loved us and gave himself for us to free us from slavery to Satan and sin and all idols. The Ephesian Christians, they came out as a great crowd and lit a fire to rid themselves of idols. And in so doing, they showed that their lives and their hearts had now been demonstrably changed. And as a result, verse 20 says, the word of the Lord, it continued to increase and prevail. Which means that their example of real repentance and change led to many more conversions in other people's lives. And along with that, I love Acts is so open and honest, more conversions, but along with that, some growing opposition as well. Because in the fifth and final link in our chain of events this morning, we'll just touch on this briefly, the world took notice. The world took notice. Now, if you can remember back to your history lessons at school, you might remember at some point learning about uh, some things called the seven wonders of the ancient world. There are seven modern wonders, I believe, but these were the, these were the original seven, the ancient wonders of the world. And uh, th- that wasn't like a 20th century designation for some old things. These places were recognized as the seven great wonders of the world, even in Paul's day and for several hundred years before that. If you could have bought a tourist guide in Paul's day um, or, or gone on to the TripAdvisor, what, what are the seven things to go look at on my holiday? These seven wonders would be what you'd find inside. And so we have, I've got a picture there, I'm going to go from right to left. The mausoleum at Halicarnassus, the hanging gardens of Babylon, 
the Colossus of Rhodes, the Lighthouse of Alexandria, the Statue of Zeus, the Great Pyramids of Giza, and the Temple of Artemis. And apparently of all those seven ancient wonders, the Temple of Artemis was considered to be the most magnificent of them all. It was the greatest cathedral of paganism in the ancient Roman Empire. And it was right there in Ephesus. It was a source of incredible civic pride to the people there. You can imagine, can't you, how proud they were. How many of us have taken visiting people first time in Bristol. You've got to come and see the suspension bridge or, or, or places like that. Well, this, that suspension bridge is tiny compared to this. Right there in Ephesus. And, and now here comes this, this little Jewish guy called Paul. He's armed only with something he calls the gospel of Jesus, and his message is threatening to overturn the city's pagan roots entirely. This, this right here, this is a clash of kingdoms. The kingdom of Artemis is being invaded and is under threat from the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of darkness is clashing with the kingdom of light. And it's no wonder then that it causes some little disturbance, no little disturbance and no little upset for people like Demetrius who we read about in the final section of chapter 19. Demetrius, Luke tells us, was a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, this is verse 24, and brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, the thing about Demetrius, of course, you want to do a character study on Demetrius. Demetrius, uh, you probably spotted it already. He's not even really concerned about what's true, what's real, what's right. He is much more concerned about money and profit and maybe prestige and keeping things the way they are. And there will always be people in the world like this. People strongly opposed to Christianity. Maybe not even because they've got strong contradictory beliefs, but simply because they love things like money, power, and autonomy. And they feel like those things are threatened by the mere message of Christianity. And the thing is, of course, they're not entirely wrong. Demetrius is actually right about Paul's message. He's going around telling people that gods made with hands are not gods. Yes, Paul is doing that. But it really shouldn't be a controversial thing to say that, should it? I noticed no one fell off their chair this morning in shock when we read that statement. Surely it should be self-evident that you can't make a God with your own hands. But it just goes to show how blind mankind is by his sin. That, that this would be the most threatening message in the world to them. Gods made with hands are not gods. What this all comes down to then in the end, is who and what we worship. I started off quoting from a tale of two cities, but what we really have here by the end of the chapter is a tale of two temples. On the one hand, you've got the great temple Artemis, the tourist hotspot, 
which really is the perfect picture of all of the false gods and created things that fallen mankind chooses to worship. The kind of temple that a humanity cut off from their creator would consider to be the greatest ancient wonder of the world. And on the other hand, God is now building a rival temple of his own in Ephesus. A temple not of bricks and stones and impressive pillars, but of something far more precious, of a redeemed and rescued people. A people who Paul would one day go on to write, describe in his letter to the Ephesians, as a holy temple in the Lord. A people being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. The question for each of us this morning is this, whether we, whether we consider ourselves a Christian or not, in which of these two temples do I actually worship? To which of these two temples do I belong? Is it to a temple of false gods and demons and pagan worship? To a temple of worshipping the idols of money and sex and pride and popularity? Or do I belong to the temple of God, the church of Jesus Christ, where Christ alone is worshipped as Lord and creator, where he is trusted as saviour, where he is valued above all other treasures? That is the challenge of our passage and that is the glorious invitation of it, of this gospel that caused no little disturbance in Ephesus. We all of us, let it be understood, we all of us begin by worshipping in the temple of Artemis. Cut off from the God, the one who alone is truly God. But Jesus Christ came down from heaven to rescue a great multitude of people from every kind of false, dark and soul-destroying worship. He came to, our, to this earth to raise people to new spiritual life in himself. To give eternal life to all who would turn and bow the knee to him and put their hope and trust in him. And it's that invitation to receive that new life and that promise of pardon and forgiveness, of real worship and a restored relationship with God that he is still, even now today, issuing in every village, every town, every city, every neighborhood where the gospel message is taken. As we've seen, only God can give such a free and full salvation. But God is indeed still at work, just as much as he was in Ephesus. He still sends forth his people with his word, with the good news of the gospel to be proclaimed to every person. And he still accompanies that gospel with great power, the power of the Holy Spirit, to open men's eyes to the absolute lordship of Christ, which is the most beautiful sight in all of the world. And that same spirit is also actively at work in us, his temple, his church, making us into a holy people who do live increasingly changed and transformed lives under the lordship of Jesus so that we would be like a city shining on a hill to be used by God to draw many more people out of the darkness, to hear the word of the gospel that is the gateway into his kingdom of light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are very much with us and at work amongst us this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, the word of your gospel of grace that has reached us and rescued us through Jesus, 
from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. Father, we declare that Christ is Lord of all this morning. It is our delight to declare it. And we pray that you would help us to live in practice with him as the Lord of every part of our lives more and more. Keep us, we pray, from worshipping idols or trusting in any other thing than Jesus. And please continue to bless our witness as a church, that our message would be clear and our lives markedly different from the world's, that we might reach the world and our communities with the good news of Jesus. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Lord. Amen.